Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Hello and welcome to Out of Office. I'm Alika Kapoor. At the beginning of this year, we promised we would ask executives questions that don't typically come up when they're in the office. Over the last 12 months of this podcast, we've done just that and had wide, free-ranging conversations with global leaders. Of course, back then we had no idea how 2020 would shape up and that most of us would spend this year, well, out of office. It was a challenging year, no doubt, and as the world's largest work-from-home experiment continues, I'm grateful to all the leaders who took time out from their busy days to participate in this podcast. I asked them how they're doing, how their staff is doing, how they're navigating the pandemic. Each time, the answers were different and distinct. Early in the year, when I spoke to Joey Watt, the CEO of Yum China, She'd been away from her husband and son for four months because of the pandemic. Yum China is the largest restaurant chain in China with a staff of 450,000 people who work across brands that include Pizza Hut and KFC. Yum China kept some of its stores open throughout the crisis because... It's just the right thing to do. In this episode, Joey explained why doing the right thing, even when it's not the easiest thing, drives her. Joey, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you, Malika. Thank you. So, Joey, when I met you last, it was end of January and we were in Davos. Correct. I don't think you or I had any idea how much the world was about to change. Indeed. Indeed. Shocking. Shocking, right? So you went back from Davos to China. Correct. And... Were you completely surprised by how much things had changed or how quickly things changed? Yes and no. Um, when I was in Davos, I, I remember the date quite quite clearly. January 20th is the date when internally we set up the crisis management team. And by January 23rd, uh, that was Wuhan lockdown. We were in Davos at that time. Uh, and then very shortly after I jump on the train, fly directly from Zurich back to China. By January 20th, we, we kind of have a sense that this is serious. And by by the time Wuhan lockdown, we know this is unprecedented. Uh, we we close many stores in Wuhan very quickly. We have never really closed our stores, including Chinese New Year. Really? So this was a big step. This is a big step. Even compared to SARS 17 years ago, we trade through the entire SARS time 17 years ago. And for us, at the height of the CV-19, we closed more than 30% of our store. And this is absolutely the first time in our last 30-some years record. So we, we knew it was uh, very, very serious. Uh, You've been through a challenging couple of months, as have a lot of your peers in the restaurant industry. But Yum China seems to have done okay. 
we still a bit more than ten percent down for April, but but um, you know, we are grateful for the trust from our customer, from our employee, from everyone. Uh, to allow us to recover, to support our business recover to almost 90%. And that was very, uh, very encouraging. Business to recover almost 90%. That is absolutely incredible. Congratulations for that. Thank you. Thank what you. What do you attribute that to? We have a few months time to reflect upon it. And, and now uh, we are able to, to put it in a relatively uh, simple way to describe uh, our thinking at the beginning of the CVID nineteen, let's say January twenty, uh, we we have few things uh, that 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 were very very clear to the management's uh, head and to our decision making process, because when we were faced with such unprecedented challenges, we could not really rely on historical or past experience to make decision, but we can always rely on our values, our culture, and our best judgment of the situation. We know that we're going to make mistakes. We know that we're going to be far from perfect, but we need to have the courage to make the, make the decision. And the analogy that I use with my team is, um, it's just like we being parent for the first time. So assuming young China is a family, we, we are a big family, over 400,000 plus employees is a very big family. That was exactly my question, Joey. But yeah. when you're talking about being new parents and having kids, you're talking about 460,000 employees. Yes. Yes. That's one of the largest workforces in the world for a company. Some family members are sick, were very sick. That's Wuhan. And then later on, who else got sick? Henan. And we are closing the stores as situation evolves. So for some family members were, were sick and they need to rest and they need to recover. However, there are other family members who were not sick. That is the eastern part of China. Mm-hmm. And we make decisions based on our best data. Um, so, so when some family members are sick, the rest family members actually need to keep working. So that one day when, when Wuhan and Henan recover, we still have food on the table for the family. Not to mention, while we look after the employee, we have to look after the customers and, and the community because we always forget and we almost hesitate sometimes to, to admit, to recognize that lockdown is a middle-class privilege. I agree with you. A lockdown is definitely a middle-class privilege. You do have large sections of society, especially in developing countries, who simply cannot afford to stay at home and even can't afford social distancing. What inspired us at that time was we closed all the stores in Wuhan, and then we realized some hospitals in Wuhan, the medical staff, the doctor and nurses, they were not getting food. And that's when you stepped in, right? So tell us about that. I mean, we donate some money, a few million, but it's small amount. But we have our own supply chain in Wuhan. We have our warehouse in Wuhan. Um, we have food in our store. So with the, with the support, strong support of my local staff, we decide to open up quite a few restaurants just to, just to prepare food for the hospitals. It's not for doing business. So we deliver free meals 
to many hospitals in Wuhan uh, for as long as we allow, as long as we could. And that inspiration continues. So up to now, we have delivered free meals to more than 1,450 hospitals and community centers in more than 28 provinces in China. So that's only one part of it. But the fact that we keep our stores open also serve our community because we we cannot forget about the police, the traffic control people, the frontline community people. They have to work to keep the lockdown going. And we are the place that they can still come in to have good food with good um, health, uh, good good hygiene and good price because we we would never raise a penny of price, uh, particularly in this situation. So we call ourselves the supporter of the essential workers. So there are always essential workers in our society around the world to keep our society going. And we are the supporter, we support them. So not only the staff, but the customer, but the community, we are responsible for. And our staff, they are wonderful. They really share the, the thought. And even though they know that sometimes and many times it, we will lose more money to keep the stores open than closing the store. We do. We do lose more money. It's just the right thing to do. And as you mentioned earlier, there are a lot of staff who need the job as well. So, you know, jobs are very, very important in normal time. Jobs are even more important during such difficult time. And and I was I was a waitress at one point myself uh, when I was 15 in Hong Kong. There's a need for money. There's a need for money. There's no other way to describe it. And what about you personally? I believe your family was away and you were in China managing the crisis. How long was the family separated? And I know you're very, you come from a very close-knit family, so that must have been hard for you. It's challenging. Uh, we've been away from each other for four months now. Are they still away? Yes, but we are seeing the end of the tunnel now. You're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so so we are doing fine. You've talked very often about doing the right thing, even if it's not always the easiest thing. Yes. Where does this value come from? Well, you asked a really a soul-searching question. Where does it come from? I, I, I'm, I'm from a small village in China originally. You were born in Fujian province, right? Yes. And, and, you know, in a small village, there were many biases and prejudices or whatever, right? Um, especially, as you can imagine, back to the old time, being a little girl in a village is not, is not necessarily the, the most prestige thing. But, you know, I have a, I have a very amazing great-grandmother, and, and she actually was the head of the household. Uh, really? she, she ran the family, not, not, not any other man in my family. <laughs> <laughs> you come from a family of strong women. <laughs> oh, she, she certainly was strong. When, when I was born, she was already uh, blind. And she, she had those bum feet, you know, that tell you how... Uh, oh, really? Yeah, she, she has bum feet and she, she was blind. Uh, but she, she ran the business. <laughs> she ran the family. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, she had bound feet. She was blind, but and she your... was illiterate too. <laughs> uh, physical physical sign. She was tiny. 
but but she's she's always so calm, so positive, um, um, and and always always talk about um, doing the right thing, and it it just kind of normal. Uh, normal thing for for me to think that way. Are there any examples of choices she made where she did the right thing that you that you remember that stand out in some of your memories? Oh, many, many, many. Some might be too hard for for audience to chew, uh, but <laughs> yes, yes. Um, she's always, uh, you know, despite the fact that you know. You can imagine girl's status in in village is not necessarily the best status. She's always so so open minded. Uh, she look at every little kid on their own merit. She look at me, look at other little girl or or whatever um, on our own merit. You can feel that, right? Kids kids are very very smart. You can feel. You can feel whether someone is genuinely nice and loving to you. Um, I I can share two two really good things um, about her. Uh, she taught me to always look at people's hearts. Don't look at their face. Don't look at their face. Don't listen to what they say, but look at their hearts. Close your eyes. Look at their hearts. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, but you have to remember she could not see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. That's incredible. That's right. As the year went on, so did the pandemic. Stress and anxiety levels grew. People began feeling more and more isolated. Jasper Broden, the CEO of Inca Group, the parent company of IKEA, says at a time as challenging as this one a leader must be a beacon a lighthouse offering hope jasper did something rather unusual to rally his team he formed a band i want to begin by talking to you about this beautiful song you created with your colleagues from around the world this summer rain on java how did this come about so i'm interested in music so i think rain on java was an a song idea that goes back to many years ago when I was living in uh, Indonesia, because it's like, I don't know if it comes through, but rain on Java is referring to when it rains on Java, it really rains, right? It's an extreme uh, type of rain. So I think it's uh, alluding to the emotions during the uh, lockdowns where people were in isolation. And I think a lot of people um, like myself and colleagues out there were, of course, feeling extreme emotions of isolation, loneliness, worry and so on. So I think that, that was the uh, uh, start of it. Um, and I always looked for a reason uh, for this song to fit in. Um, and we decided just to make it come alive and then to invite people to join us from all over the IKEA world uh, to play instruments and to, to, to do it. So it's basically done in a couple of days uh, together with some colleagues around IKEA. And then we used it uh, in June just as a, a bit of a smile and uh, yeah, to emphasize the importance of togetherness, I think, in these difficult times. It's amazing because you have colleagues from China, from the Netherlands. I mean, it really was a global effort and everybody coming together to sing one song. It's very special. 
Yeah, it was very fun. And uh, obviously, it's not the best world-class recording, maybe from the technicalities, but from an emotional perspective, I think it scores high. <laughs> so, as you said, you know, 2020 has been a difficult year for people around the world. Personally, what's it been like for you? Well, Malika, it's been, uh, I think, like you say, it's been a year like no other years we have ever experienced. And I think it continues to be, of course, incredibly surprising, challenging. Uh, at this moment, I think we all are in a moment of both uh, respect for the situation, the challenges, the longevity of it, that it's, it's truly a marathon to stay fresh and to have perspective is one of the important things. In the beginning, um, it was very difficult for me uh, as well as for anybody, but there were so many fears about, you know, uh, existentialistic fears about, of course, uh, my own family, uh, people around me, but also the company, what would happen to us and so on. At the same time, if I may say that with all the respect, it's been also refreshing to really, this is a stress test of our culture and values, our community of leaders. I think for myself, it's one of those periods in life when you really have to sort what, what is really important in life and what, what is uh, just shallow on the, on the surface. Uh, so I, I think it's uh, massive learnings for myself about my own leadership and purpose um, as well. So it's many strong things happening at the same time. What did you realize about what is truly important? Well, there's been a couple of moments. I think one of the interesting things for me was how actually the world was in um, a very strong denial together as late as in February. So we saw what happened to the, in China. And of course, uh, global companies in China responded there like we did. But we were all in agreement that it would remain in China and everybody was wrong. And throughout this journey, I think one of the interesting things is that we have been together so very wrong about so many things, <laughs> which tells me that we are trying to use historic data, knowledge uh, and experience to judge a totally new situation. So, for example, in IKEA, we, we tend to more listen to our neighbors and customers than to institutes and researchers at this moment, because, again, uh, there are so many surprising new phenomena to this. Also to the positive, the levels of collaboration has been has never been so high. If I look at, from my own perspective, the, how we work with authorities, how we work with unions, how we connect with suppliers, supply chain, uh, I think th that was not expected maybe in the beginning of it, but it has brought us closer to each other, I think. What do you think is the most important quality a business leader needs to, uh, to exhibit or to lead a company with at a time like this? I think there are a couple of things that springs to mind. I think, you know, at the heart of it, it is to be human, I think, you know. It's sometimes when we step into those roles as government officials or corporate leaders behind the tie and the suit, and we step into our expected roles. Um, but I think this has been an opportunity, both since the crisis has been so severe that there has been, on one hand, nobody to blame, if you see, but also, you know, there is no place to hide from the sincerity of the crisis. And on top of that, you know, people are connecting from home uh, like you do today. I think that has added to the like more human and personal touch. But more than so, I, can, I feel that um, it's a bit of a trend word to say agility. But, you know, in these moments that we have experienced to be able to from one day to another to reassess what was maybe true yesterday is not uh, true today and tomorrow. So the agility and the openness and also admitting mistakes, um, uh, but the speed of change here has been um, 
very important, and I have many examples to that. But finally, I think at this moment and the period we're in right now, I think um, as a leader, there are two things you need to assume, and that is recognition. People are extra thirsty for recognition these days, and I think there's so much well-deserved recognition, but there is more loneliness and isolation, and the longevity of the crisis means that people are, uh, I think, uh, lacking a, a bit of that. And the second thing, maybe most important of all, is optimism, that you as a leader have to be the beacon and the lighthouse of what's going to come uh, at the horizon, that uh, this will pass, which it will, and we're heading towards better times. It's going to be bumpy and challenging, uh, but it will be good. And there, there will be a lot of good things that we will bring with us as learnings and opportunities. So I think optimism is probably the most important. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Leaving the boardroom aside for a minute, we had the privilege of speaking with the legendary Jane Goodall. A leading primatologist and conservation activist, Goodall says much of what she has learned about leadership, she learned from animals. My colleague Yajo San spoke to her when she was under lockdown in the UK and asked her how she was holding up. Well, you know, at first um, I was frustrated and angry because, as you know, I used to travel 300 days a year all over the world. And I was actually getting into the car with my suitcase when my sister ran out uh, and said, don't, don't, no, come, just cancel. I was going to Belgium. Having been frustrated and angry, I thought, well, this isn't helpful. So I and my team have been working to make a virtual Jane. How lucky I was caught at home is where I grew up. And behind me are the books I read as a child outside in the garden. There are the trees that I climbed when I was a child. And I'm here with my sister and her family. Well, I'm, look, I'm, I'm a huge fan of you. And I'm really glad that this pandemic actually has allowed us to speak. Another side effect of a pandemic is you're seeing wild animals kind of roaming the streets, exploring cities all over the world, um, in the UK, India, and China, everywhere. You know, humans are stuck inside. And it's almost like, you know, for the first time in a very long time, these animals are having some sort of freedom to themselves. Um, and as, you know, countries are slowly getting back to normal, starting to open back up, is there any way that we can find a balance between human and wildlife? Well, we can be more understanding, like, you know, if foxes appear in the streets, we don't have to start panicking and poisoning them. Uh, unfortunately, you say back to normal, it won't be normal. I, I don't know that we'll ever be back completely to normal. I think hundreds and thousands of people will be more understanding because we must have a new relationship with the natural world. And that brings me to my next question, which is obviously the pandemic is really making us examine the way we treat wildlife. Um, we, we treat wild animals. Um, we treat nature, how we treat nature. What kind of lessons do you think we should learn from this disaster to prevent the next one? You know, the interesting thing is that this pandemic is helping me in what I've been talking about for years and years and years. 
And that is actually we brought this on ourselves. We disrespected nature. We have disrespected animals. And we have refused to listen to the scientists who predicted that this would happen because there have been previous pandemics and SARS and MERS from dromedary uh, camels, domestic ones in the Middle East, HIV AIDS from butchering and selling chimpanzee meat. We've had illnesses come from the intensive farming of animals. So we've completely disrespected animals and created conditions like in the wildlife meat markets of Asia. If I can go back to the very beginning of your career, um, you obviously had a very remarkable career. And um, when you were 26 year, years old, um, you had no formal degree at that time, but you were so determined to go to Africa. And you went to what is now known as Tanzania. So you basically just went with a notebook and binoculars, and that was it. Yeah, well, actually, you have to go back a little bit further to being born loving animals. Yes. Had an amazingly supportive mother. She's up here behind me as well. She supported this love of animals. So I was 10 years old when after reading Tarzan and Dr. Doolittle, mm -hmm. I said, body, I'm going to grow up, I'm going to go to Africa, live with wild animals and write books about them. I mean, we weren't scientists in those days, women. Mm -hmm. And she laughed at me, except mum. And she said, if you really want something like this, you're going to have to work awfully hard, take advantage of every opportunity. But if you don't give up, you may find a way. So when I left school, I was good at everything. I didn't like it. I liked to be out in nature with my dog. I had to get a job because we had so little money. Got a job as a secretary. Yes. Got a letter from a school friend inviting me to Kenya for a holiday. Her parents had bought a farm. And so there was the opportunity. Came home here so I could live without paying rent. Left my job in London. Worked as a waitress just around the corner over there. Saved up the money. Somebody said to me, if you're interested in animals, you should meet Lewis Meeky, famous paleontologist, head of the uh, Natural History Museum in Nairobi. And he asked me lots and lots of questions. I think he was impressed. I read every book I could. Two days before I met him, his secretary had quit suddenly. So that boring old secretarial course, there I was now, surrounded by people who could answer all my questions about the animals, you know, the birds and the mammals and the snakes and the insects and the plants. Leakey realized while I was working for him there that I was really passionate. This is what I'd always wanted to do. He gave me this amazing opportunity to go and live with and learn from not just any animal, but the one most like us, the chimpanzee. More recently, I spoke with Andy Parikom, the co-founder of Headspace, an app for meditation and mindful living that has more than 65 million users around the world. Andy is a former Buddhist monk who's on a mission to demystify meditation and make it available and accessible to everyone. You have a very unique window into what people are feeling. You know, you can tell by what uh, meditations, um, guided meditations they're downloading from Headspace. Is there any thing that's surprised you, I would imagine people are downloading the, the meditation for anxiety and stress. But is there any, anything that you've learned about people that surprised you this year? First of all, you imagine, right, stress, stress, anxiety and sleep. Um, it's interesting, actually. And I think this is really important. So although this year is exceptional in many ways, I think what it's done is highlight sort of the fundamentals, sort of challenges of the human condition anyway. 
If I look back over the last 10 years, the top 10 packs or courses on, on the app are stress, anxiety, and sleep. Those three things are, they, they've increased the most over the last year. So I think just typically, generally in life, those things, you know, are, are perhaps what challenge us most. Uh, we saw in the initial phase of, of COVID, on some of the stress content, it leaped as much as a, sort of a thousand percent on some of the, the, the media starts in the stress content in that yeah. first month. But just generally, we've seen, I think it's about a 20 or 30 percent increase in those types of content. And we've also, the other thing that surprised me is the increase in um, in buddies. So there's the option on the app to sort of have have a sense of community and people supporting you and you supporting them. And we've seen a massive increase in people sort of looking for increased sense of community and support. And the final final thing is, um, is worth mentioning is sort of companies as well. You know, I mentioned the challenges that we've had at Headspace. It's the same around the world. And I think we're over 500% now kind of increasing companies reaching out saying, hey, we're struggling. Our our teams are struggling. Sort of, can you can you help us in in that respect? So I think in some ways it's different. It's a different year, but in many ways it just magnifies. I think many of the things that we're often challenged by in life. How did you get into your own personal meditation journey? What was the trigger for that? So I got my I got my mum to thank for that. I was 10, 11 years old. And um, my mum started going to a meditation center. She was dealing with her stuff in life that was going on at the time, a, a divorce and some other stuff. And yeah, we started going along kind of with her. And, and I think, although I didn't keep it up throughout my teens, it really, it made a mark for the few years that we did do it. And it meant that when I faced my own challenges kind of later, uh, later in my, my teens and early 20s, um, losing a couple of sort of friends and my stepsister as well at a very sort of early age, um, it seemed like a natural thing to to pursue. My journey into meditation sort of in earnest began in my early early 20s, sort of becoming a, sort of heading off to become a, a Buddhist monk. And I believe you headed off to find solace in the Himalayas, in the mountains, in India, at a monastery after you lost some friends in a car accident. Is that right? Yeah, I was in a um I was in a group of a group or a group of us. It was Christmas morning. Um we'd been at a party and we just sort of came out of the club and we were on a on a sidewalk and a, a drunk driver lost control and crashed into into the group. And yeah, I was very fortunate. I didn't I didn't get hit, but several people lost their lives that night and most of the group actually ended up in in intensive care. Um and I think for me that was a real kind of turning point. It made me question. It took a little while, I think, to sink in, but made me question, you know, what I was going to do with my life, what gave me a sense of purpose and fulfillment. And it unquestionably changed the, the direction of my life, thankfully, in a very positive way. You know? But I mean, an event like that would, of course, it's absolutely a life changing experience. And you ended up then going to a monastery in India. It was India, right? Yeah, first first stop was was India, and then I um, and then I sort of became a novice monk in the Burmese tradition, um, and eventually I came back to India um, and, and ordained in the Tibetan tradition in northern India. And what was that experience like? What was, you know, the years of training? What was the most rewarding part? What was the most challenging part? 
It's funny. Almost, it almost feels like a, a different, a different world now. When I look back at <laughs> the, the, just that experience of living that that yeah. world, you know, I feel I feel so fortunate to have even had the response, the the opportunity. I think it's rare in life to find that time in life where maybe you don't have necessarily a career or a partner or children. And so I, I feel very fortunate to have found it when when I did. When I look back, the, the thing that stays with me is the sense of simplicity. You know, there's no decisions to make. <laughs> there's nothing. You know, you, you wake up in the morning, every day is the same. You do your meditation. You know, you encourage the mind to do it with a sense of compassion and empathy and a sense of doing it for others, not for oneself. And, and that's a really, it's just a really beautiful way to kind of live live life, you know. But it's also really challenging. I think yeah, I, I went with the idea, a very naive idea that, you know, I just sit there and it would be magical and blissful and, you know, my mind would be very peaceful. And the reality is it's really hard to sit with ourselves, you know, especially oh, yeah. every day for long periods of time, you know. So just kind of getting comfortable with the mind as it is, that took quite some time. And then sort of developing a sense of stability in that as well. Because I think even if we do little bits of meditation, sometimes we get the benefit, but we don't necessarily feel the stability of that throughout the day, um, every day, you know. So I feel like, yeah, sort of the hardest bit was finding stability. The most pleasurable bit was just the simplicity and, and the ease of it and being surrounded by people with a very similar kind of intention as well. It's a big thing. And when you went in there, did you think that this was it, that you were going to devote your life? I did. Yeah. I really did. I thought I thought I was going to do it for life to begin with. I, you know, I think it was it was naivety that drove that sort of thinking. I just didn't even really know what I was doing, to be honest. You know, I, I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't really know what that entailed and the implications of it. And then I think as time went on and I understood the journey a bit better and I just assumed I would do it for life. Eventually, I, I actually couldn't decide. You know, so I, I went to my teacher and I was taking ordination for, um, in this particular tradition, you do it for three years, five years or life when you take sort of a new commitment. And I was choosing between three years and life. And he said, so which would you like to do? You know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> big decision, big day. And I said, um, I'd actually feel more comfortable if, if you decide for me. I really trusted him, you know, I, yeah. very wise teacher. And, um, and, and he said, oh, this time I think maybe let's, let's do three years, let's, you know, and, and we'll, see, we'll see where we are afterwards. Do you ever go yeah. back and visit? Have you been back? Yeah, I, I was actually back there just at the start. It was before sort of COVID became sort of, I guess, a thing in, in America. It was around in the news, but it hadn't really. And we were actually in, in India as a, as a team. There were a few of us doing some filming over there. We went back to, the, to my old monastery and um, met with the teachers. And, and I'm one of my Tibetan lamas as well. He, he came out and spent some time with the entire team here in LA about three years ago. But then once you decided to leave... You ended up eventually in Silicon Valley with this idea to bring meditation to the masses. Yeah. So how did that happen? Yes, exactly. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not sure. It, it was it was all very organic. You know, I I would I'd love to claim sort of that I I knew what I was doing mm -hmm. and um, it was all thought out. 
I just, I wanted to find a way of sharing what I'd learned. And I met very early on after leaving the monastery, I met the co-founder of Headspace, um, now now a very dear friend, Rich Pearson. Mm-hmm. You know, we just talked about kind of what that could look like. And, and Rich had a good understanding of creative and technology. And um, after a couple of years, we, you know, moved from events into, into the app. And it just took off. I think it caught a time, you know, we were, on the one hand, we'd been part of building that conversation. But also, I think we were the recipients of many decades of science that had gone into mindfulness and of just a time, really, a cultural time where people were starting to feel increasingly overwhelmed, increasingly stressed and looking for some kind of intervention. So I feel it was just one of those things. It was timing and I think an intention to sort of improve, improve the health and happiness of the world. On that note of hope for improved health and happiness for the world, we wrap up Out of Office for 2020. Thank you so much for your support throughout this year. A big thank you to the team that's worked on this podcast as well, and in particular to my editor, Laura Carlson. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. My handle is at thisismalika, and I would love to hear from you. Meanwhile, happy holidays. Stay safe, everyone. And we'll be back in January with more episodes of Out of Office. Thank you for listening. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.